Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so that more people can find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dylan Palman, Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality here at Acton. Today, we're going to talk about a student revolt at the University of Michigan over Lawrence Olivier's turn in blackface in Othello. No, I'm not kidding about that. And a new book on woke capitalism. But first, I want to go to the skies, or perhaps more accurately, the tarmacs. Southwest Airlines canceled more than a thousand flights this past weekend amid air traffic control issues and weather. The airline was not given an update on when it may continue. However, there is speculation that there's more to this story than that, that it has to do with uh, a bit of a revolt within Southwest Airlines over a vaccine mandate that pilots would then uh, have to be vaccinated Um, I actually happen to be friends with a few people who work for uh, Southwest Airlines, and if this were just about air traffic control issues and weather, you wouldn't expect to see them posting with the hashtag Southwest Strong for whatever that's supposed to mean. So it does suggest to me that there is something more that is going on there. However, the official story is that it's air traffic staffing shortages and bad weather. The Federal Aviation Administration pushed back, saying the culprit was uh, aircraft and crews being out of place. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on Southwest specifically, but I want to use this as a way to talk about some of the conversations that are going on about vaccine mandates. So we had Joe Biden's proposed and soon to be enacted, I believe, vaccine mandate on businesses above a certain size. But you also have a lot of companies that have chosen of their own accord to implement vaccine mandates for their workers. And we've seen a lot of pushback on this. And I'm, I'm curious, Sam, what what do you think is motivating some of the reaction to this? Because there seems to be a new libertarian streak amongst a certain group of people, some of which I think may have been inclined to get the vaccine, but are very much having a reaction that says, well, you don't get to tell me what to do. And as a result, now they're opposed to both the mandate and getting the vaccine, in part because of these efforts by private companies, which by my light should be able to decide if they want their workforces to be vaccinated or not. Uh, to get the vaccine, what is it? Are polarized politics, or is there anything more at play? You think that is motivating people to have this kind of "you just can't tell me what to do" reaction? Well, I'm, I'm often fond of saying that Americans are different from other people. So, well, lots of Americans will say, "Yes, I'm happy to do X," or "I'm happy to do Y." What they're not happy to do is to have someone tell them, "You must do X," or "You must do Y." So there's a very strong streak, I think, in American history and American culture that inclines people who might be otherwise happy to do something, but they don't like being told to do it, especially when it's the federal government or even state governments that are telling them to do uh, certain things. But I also think, uh, so that's one thing. I think a second thing is that 
for, well, since what, February, March 2020, we've had government telling people to do all sorts of things, close your business, wear a mask, uh, go here, but don't go there, uh, wash your hands, etc. All of which I think, uh, you know, may or may not be good policies. Um, I'm no epidemiologist, I don't track these things particularly closely. And for all I know, all these things might be great ideas. I mean, it's good to wash your hands. Sometimes, maybe it's good to wear a mask in some settings. Um, the, the amount that they had to tell people to wash their hands was unendingly <laughs> disturbing to me. Like, what have you people been doing prior to this? But yeah, yes. Right, right. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things that, that may be good, for all I know. Uh, but we've had a whole year, well, a year and a half now of the federal government telling, and state governments and local governments telling people they must do certain things. Uh, so that plus growing evidence that while some of these things, some of these policies might might be effective, some of these policies might have been understandable when they were first introduced uh, because we knew so little about much of what was going on with this particular pandemic, this particular disease, after a year and a half, I think people become more cynical, more skeptical, whether whether it's merited or not. But I think after a while, people just get fed up with being told what to do after a while. And so there comes a point, I think, in even societies that are pretty conformist, there comes a point where enough people will say, you know, this policy might in fact be a good idea, but I'm tired of you telling me to behave in certain ways, so I'm no longer going to do it. Uh, This is not just an American phenomenon. We see this in many European countries where we've seen mass protests against all sorts of things associated with government measures to deal with the pandemic. We've even seen this uh, in Australia. I know where, where, of course, these measures have been rigorously implemented in a society which I would say is pretty conformist in many, many respects. But talking with friends and others in Australia, there are lots of people there who are just simply not abiding by these things anymore. They're just not abiding by these things anymore. And a lot of police, a lot of um, law enforcement is no longer enforcing these things anymore because they'd end up having to arrest half the population of some cities if they did. So I think this is part of what's going on. I'm not sure it's specifically about vaccines per se. I think it's much more about, let's call it obedience fatigue. I think Sam's point about Americans being ornery is definitely true. There's Robert Nisbet had this great story of, uh, to him, one of the great unintended sociological studies ever uh, conducted was in the 1770s or so in the, the period surrounding the revolution. If you were a royalist or a loyalist, you either went to Canada or stayed in Canada. And if you were a, a patriot, a revolutionary, you were in the colonies. Fast forward 200 years later, in 1976, when both Canada and the United States announced that they are going to go to the metric system, Canada says, all right, eh? And the United States says, no, we're not. <laughs> Even though, like, just from as someone who's bad at math, you know, sets of 10 is a lot easier to do than the imperial system that the United States uses. But there's something in the United States, the character of the United, of American people that just says, no, we're not going to do it just because you told us that we're going to do it. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of salience to Sam's point that it is an exhaustion of being told what to do. But it, I'm 
I, I guess what I wonder about is at what point does it become somewhat perilously, perilously self-defeating and it turns people into because they hate the way that they're being told to do something. They instead of saying it may be a good idea to do X, but we shouldn't have it shouldn't be mandated by the government. It turns them into a position of we shouldn't be told or mandated to do X, so we shouldn't do it at all. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say nothing says freedom like 12 inches to a foot and three feet to a yard. Uh, <laughs> so maybe there was an underlying principle there. Um, no, I do think there's something to that, that it, it can be it can be and feel infantilizing. If it's something like, you know, people saying, well, I am vaccinated or I'm, I'm, I got my appointment scheduled next week, but now you're telling me to do it. Or, yes, I already washed my hand. You know, um, I'm I'm under the position that this is something for the private sector to sort out or maybe for the government to issue recommended guidelines, right? But uh, mandates are the sort of thing that are, you know, you're, you're looking at somebody losing their business, um, losing their livelihood. Um, and there's, there, there are reasons uh, in some cases to, to maybe get too into the weeds, but there's some people who medically can't be vaccinated. It's a very small number. Um, but okay, what do they do? Do they have to prove it? Do they have to find a new job? Do they, you know, um, there's all kinds of issues where employees and employers can work this out on their own. Part of that working it out, that's who knows what's going on in the Southwest, but part of that working it out might be things like mass strikes and negotiations and arbitration and whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, constantly having someone, you know, like I have to tell my kids all the time, you know, clean up after yourself, whatever. The goal is that I won't have to tell them that they will learn. Right. Um, and they will learn by the time they're adults. They aren't going to need to be told that. So if somebody goes around and says, oh, by the way, don't forget to, like, wipe your face when you're done eating. Right. Are they going to have any respect for that person? No, of course not. Why would they? Uh, that person is treating them like a child when they're grown up. Um, so, I mean, I think there, there's there's a basic element of that in this. Uh, so that's not you know necessarily to be for or against uh, any particular mandate, uh, but just to say that that the the medium, you know, the the kind of message, the rhetoric to the message, um, matters just as much as the message itself. Va- vaccination is important. I I think so. Um, I I think it's been incredibly effective. I think there's good data to show that, um, but. Okay, how do we how do we promote that in the best possible way? Um, maybe mandates or at least government mandates aren't the best way to do that. Maybe not for Americans. I don't know. Yeah, Sam, I I, I think what is what is interesting or at least somewhat baffling to me is that inability, as as I was saying earlier, to state on one hand. This maybe this isn't the way to approach it. Maybe, you know, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate, um, which is going to have like all government policies, unintended consequences. Right. Because, you know, it's it's this thing where you have to draw arbitrary lines at some point. Right. If you're not going to enforce it on everyone and you can understand why they would look at a policy proposal that would impose it on businesses less than with less than 100 people and say that it's completely unmanageable. Like if you've got a three or four person business, how do you enforce compliance on that? It would be a nightmare from their perspective. So you have to draw that arbitrary line somewhere. And those arbitrary lines always seem ridiculous when you put it into those, you know, the the cases right on the edge of it. You have a business of 99 people. Do you hire one more person? Say you need one more person. 
A lot of businesses need employees right now, if you haven't noticed. Hmm. Do you go and hire that one person and then have to endure all the compliance costs that are going to come with tipping over that 100 person mark, and then you have to be a part of this mandate. Um, you, you see it certainly in, in the drinking age, in the driving age. You know, there are probably 15-year-olds who are more capable of driving than some 18-year-olds out there, but you have to draw the line at some point. But what I find, I guess, just baffling to me is the inability of people to make distinctions in this and say that Mandates are probably not the way – government mandates may not be the way to approach this. And even in this case, as as Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, their union, has filed a motion for a temporary restraining order against the airline's COVID-19 vaccine mandate um, to say that maybe – private businesses enforcing this on their employees isn't the way to do it. But to still also say, but it's still a good idea to get vaccinated for the people who can. It, it just is baffling to me that people can't make that fine line distinction and get driven into a position that I don't know that they would hold if not for the other circumstances surrounding it, which, Sam, I just guess speaks to your point that you were making earlier, that it has to do more with the infantilizing nature of being told what to do over and over and over again. But it's, you know, perhaps that's a mistake in policy then is forcing people into decisions that are possibly unwise and without good reason. Well, another part of this uh, is, I think, it's a good example of some of the problems of having one-size-fits-all policies to try and deal with certain problems. Now, I think in some cases, one size fits all is inevitable with certain things. We don't have a, you know, we don't negotiate uh, what constitutes murder. (laughs) We don't negotiate what constitutes theft. Uh, We don't negotiate what constitutes uh, perjury, etc. But uh, that said, there's a whole range of different areas, especially when it comes to uh, the economy, where a decentralized approach, I think, is usually much more effective because there are often very specific circumstances or conditions that pertain to a particular business or a particular company or even a particular sector of the market where it's perhaps better to let employers, employees, uh, trade associations, whoever, to sit down and try and work this out themselves. Now, that, of course, assumes that people are acting out of goodwill, that assumes that people are willing to be reasonable, and they're pretty big assumptions, right? Because obviously, that's often not the case. But it does seem to me that if the one thing we have learned as a consequence of this is that the case for decentralization and the way that political authority is exercised in America through, let's call it federalism or some even deeper forms of, of decentralization, I think that's, that's become, the case for that has become stronger. I think of things like imposing the same type of mandates on a county that is, say, highly urban, incredibly urban, incredibly dense, compared to another county where the population density is, what, one person every five miles. I mean, it makes no sense to impose exactly the same um, mandate for those two very different uh, counties. So I think this is this is part of the problem. And maybe maybe one of the unintended side effects of the pandemic is to remind us 
that there are good reasons why one should hope that in a way one can, political authority and decision-making can be decentralised. And that plays, of course, into one of the key principles of the Acton Institute is the principle of subsidiarity, right, which is partly about decentralisation, but it's also about giving people the freedom to think seriously and come up with responsible policies that fit the particular community of the people who are making those types of decisions. I think I'll let either of you take a bite of this if you want, but what I find interesting about what you said there, Sam, is a lot of the people that I think, if if we were to draw a Venn diagram and get the overlap of uh, the, the people in the position I've been describing who are the most resistant to these mandates, I think overlaps um, not insignificantly with the new right that the new nationalist right, and by definition, nationalist, you're elevating almost everything up to the national level, to the federal government as the only possible organ that can speak for the entire people. And maybe it's just me seeing this, but these weird contradictory things where I think Sam is correct. It would be better if we were to deal with these circumstances as close to the communities that they affect as possible. And Sam's point about different counties was driven home perfectly clearly to me at the beginning of this pandemic. I was still living in Chicago. The idea that the policies in (laughs) Illinois for Chicago should be the same ones for, you know, Southern Illinois counties that have, you know, not even a fraction of that population density, do not have any urban centers similar to Chicago or even similar to suburbs of Chicago. It's lunacy. But nonetheless, that's the situation that we that we had there. But you have these, I think, amongst even this one group of people, these competing uh, desires to not want to have the federal government, at least one that they don't like, mandating these kinds of things, but also an inclination amongst this group of people to want to elevate almost every question that we're dealing with out of local communities up to the federal government. Yeah, well, I think that my in my experience um, – that comes from this this weird sort of understanding. This is sort of like a if you can't beat them, join them, and then fight over the same thing sort of mentality. That um, oh, we're going to have all these things imposed upon us. What we should really be doing is trying to impose all our things on everyone else. Um, and there's a failure in that sort of um, dichotomy to see that like doing nothing is something. In fact, in this case, it's doing a lot. Uh, That's not to say nobody should do anything, but the government, the federal government, doing nothing. You know, it's one thing for a mandate on federal employees. People may agree or disagree with that, but at least that's obviously the jurisdiction of the federal government. Uh, But to be crossing state lines, right? So, I mean, you know, I'm not even – I don't even think governments should be mandating private businesses. I think they can – Private businesses can deal with this on their own. They can cooperate with governments. They can, again, you know, right. look at guidelines and recommendations, that sort of thing. Hopefully, they're also negotiating with employees, employee, employee unions, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, there's there's a subsidiarity question that, okay, if any government is going to impose mandates, how about the county commissioner, right, or the mayor, or, you know, some some local level of government that is actually – you know, in far greater touch with the situation on the ground than, you know, as we've seen even in Illinois, and certainly the same is true here in Michigan, uh, state level regulations and restrictions uh, made sense for Detroit, 
they didn't make sense for the Upper Peninsula, right? Right. Um, and and we saw that all over the country. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I look at it that way. I think the, the you know the the new right, the nationalist right, um, they they think it's all about power and about winning, um, and I think that's uh, frankly a very foolish and dangerous way to conceive uh, of politics. Uh, that it used to be thought of as the art of compromise, um, and I think we are in great need of greater compromise. Compromise requires actually like talking to and listening to people you don't agree with, and uh, that's something that people are very unwilling to do. Let's close this out with two questions for both of you. Uh, do my John McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin group impersonation here. I'll just yell that you're wrong after whatever your answer is and it'll be perfect <laughs> then. Um, right now, 66% of the American population has received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 57% of the population has been fully vaccinated. Dylan, in your opinion, I'll come to you next, Sam, if there wouldn't have been the kind of concerted public relations effort to tell people every t- everywhere they are all the time, get vaccinated, do you think that number would be higher? Um, that's a really good question. So my general reference point for vaccination is to think about um, flu vaccination. Uh, and frankly, I think that's about the best rate we can hope for. Um, we get maybe, if not quite, 50% of people vaccinated for the flu every year. Um, and, the, you know, there are differences between the flu and COVID. I want sure. to be very clear. I'm not, not trying to equivocate. Um, but there are, just, there are all kinds of reasons why people haven't gotten vaccinated, why they've waited to get vaccinated. Um, I'm yet to run into somebody who has said, you know, I wasn't going to get vaccinated, but then Stephen Colbert said it was really important, and so I decided yes, I should uh, do it. I, that's hypo, not, dancing hypodermic needles is always yeah, the best persuasive means right, of getting people to get vaccinated. To, to criticize or compliment Stephen Colbert, it's just to say I, I, I think there's this weird sort of um, clout that we assume uh, celebrities have, um, and and others, you know, for that matter, public figures. Uh, and especially in America, as, as Sam already pointed out, there's just a lot of people that don't want anybody telling them what to do. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter if they're in government or their boss or on TV. Um, they want to figure it out for themselves. Sometimes they make bad decisions. Sometimes they have bad information. Um, but I think uh, you know a better strategy is making the right information available and trusting that people will come across it. So I'm thinking you're probably saying maybe about the same as yeah the... I, yeah yeah to to give you an actual answer I think <laughs> I think uh, um, you know there might be some marginal difference but I'd say probably about the same. Sam, do you think if there weren't the concerted effort that it would be uh, higher than the rates that we currently see? I tend to agree with Dylan. It's partly a cultural disposition on the part of Americans. And I think that people have all sorts of reasons why they get vaccinated or why they don't get vaccinated. And I'm reluctant to second guess people about this. There's things I don't know about their situation. I don't know their medical history. I don't know if they have underlying conditions. And frankly, it's not my business whether they have those sorts of things. It's really up to them to act in what they believe to be their best interests, the best interests of their families and the best interests of the communities in which they live. So I think all in all, I, I suspect that we would end up pretty much in the same level of vaccination rate that, uh, that we already have. That's my sense. Let me go to you for uh, Sam first for the second question I have to close this out. By 
the new year, by the beginning of 2022, do you think most businesses are going to drop vaccine requirements? So you're seeing the pushback at Southwest and other places. Do you think most businesses will end up just dropping it and letting this thing sort itself out? Oh, well, I don't know. I... I hope so, but I think that <laughs> I think businesses actually have a, a rather a, a big problem now in just getting people to work for them. So, to the extent that impose, if imposing vaccine mandates is an obstacle to recruiting people to work for them in different parts of the economy, I think that some uh, some economic forces will come to bear, and and people businesses will say, well, I guess we're just going to have to drop this because we already have enough difficulty recruiting people to work. Uh, why put another obstacle? Why put another disincentive in front of people who are, have, for different reasons, don't want to get vaccinated? Dylan? I think it depends on the business. And I think, you know, it, there's a parallel with mask mandates, right? Um, I think a lot of businesses, probably it's a no-go in terms of, yeah, are they going to get the, the talent they need? Um, I think hospitals... You know, I think I think there are certain workplaces where it makes a lot of sense. And the sort of person who wants to work there is probably pretty likely to comply anyway. Um, so there may be a mandate, but it's also kind of completely unnecessary. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. And there, there are cases where I think conflict is part of the solution. Um, maybe it won't be. But, you know, that's labor disputes happen, right? And sometimes they get resolved because the company and the laborers or their union come to an agreement. Maybe the agreement will be, hey, we're, we're, everybody's okay with the Pfizer vaccine. You know, who knows? Who knows what it is that, that might be an issue for people? And you don't find out until you actually talk to them and you figure it out. And sometimes, you know, you're going to not see eye to eye for a little bit first. So... Let's take for us here in Grand Rapids a relatively short hop over to Ann Arbor, Michigan and the University of Michigan. And I will give you the intro of the story from Robbie Suave at Reason. Bright Sheng is a professor of composition at the University of Michigan. He was born in China in 1955. When he was a child, the Red Guards took away his family piano. Nevertheless, he grew up to become a widely celebrated musician. He received a MacArthur Genius Fellowship in 2001 and this twice been a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize in Music. His undergraduate students uh, should certainly count themselves lucky to be able to learn from him. Instead, they are demanding the university fire him for rendering the classroom an unsafe space. The administration is looking into the matter, and Shang has stepped down from teaching the class for the time being. He has apologized profusely for making his students feel wronged, though many have loudly rejected his apology. What was Shang's transgression? He screened the 1965 version of Shakespeare's Othello in class as part of a lesson about how the play was adapted for opera. This version stars Laurence Olivier, a white actor who wore blackface to portray the protagonist Othello, a Moor. The choice was controversial even at the time, and today the portrayal is considered by many to be akin to a racial caricature. Uh, this strikes me, of course, as like just another one of these kind of bananas situations where people are so dramatically overreacting to something that, as Robbie points out here, was considered controversial even at the time, but also not at all the purpose of why it was being shown to these students. So 
I've gone back and forth on a lot of these campus cultural questions over the years, which is to say my when people start inveighing against problems like this, the first thing that I tend to think of is that it's a some kind of a budding moral panic and things are probably not as bad as they make them out to be. But you certainly do see situations like this continue to occur. And the people who said that, oh, what, what just, you know, this would have been several years ago, just wait until these people get out of these kind of cloistered college environments where, you know, they're being coddled to borrow from Greg Lukianov and, and Jonathan Haidt, their American minds are being coddled and get into the real world and they'll be disabused of all of this. And we'll get to Sam's book on woke capitalism, uh, the book review he did for a book on woke capitalism in a little bit here. But that certainly doesn't seem to be the case where they've been disabused of it. So is I guess my question, Sam, I'll go to you first, is this seems totally bizarre. At some point, there has to be a tipping point on this, right, where people are just going to say, yeah, the idea that this professor uh, needs to be put through a uh, an American version of a yeah, a, an American version <laughs> of a struggle session for right. showing a film, the point of which was not to exalt Laurence Olivier for wearing blackface, but to make a point about the development of the play into opera. The, the overwhelming reaction to these things has to be that this is ridiculous and should we have any hope that colleges are going to start saying, yeah, no, we're not going to let you make this kind of trouble and we're going to focus on education? Um, I'm not optimistic, but are you? No, I'm not optimistic. Um, I'm not optimistic because uh, colleges and universities, just even putting aside this particular incident, Colleges and universities are highly ideologically charged places today, even compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago. This is a long culmination of a classic march through the institutions. And I think when you add to that the current, um, it's called a woke ideology or whatever you want to call it, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that this is this is happening. I mean, it is interesting when you have these cases of people who have actually really suffered under totalitarian regimes for their beliefs and have to had to go through all these different things to to <clears throat> quote unquote repent, and then they come to the United States, the land of freedom, and they find uh, it's not quite the same thing, but uh, it's certainly a tendency to shut things down in the name of sensitivity and all these different things. So I'm not particularly optimistic. <clears throat> there is, I think, in some quarters, some pushback against this. Um, we see some professors, usually professors who are of such a standing and stature that it's very difficult to, to take them down in the way that you can take down in a, you know, an associate professor who's not got tenure or whatever it happens to be for, <clears throat> for alleged transgressions. But uh, the, if anything, I think it's not just a problem with uh, some students. I think a lot of students just go to college and they just go and do their thing. They do their studies and they move out and they're completely politically unengaged in all these sorts of things. I think most of these things are generally driven by a small minority of people. You have a considerable number of faculty who, for all sorts of different reasons, are playing this game. But also I think there's a fair number of people... <laughs> Which in the administration of a lot of universities who are part of the difficulty here, 
And in some cases, I'm sure they're thinking, well, we need to avoid liability, etc. But in some cases, I don't doubt that it's ideologically driven as well. So I have more hope for other segments of society when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, although I have, I have some caveats about that as well. But in terms of colleges and universities, I don't think it's likely to be getting any better particularly soon. There are over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. And what Sam was hinting at there is, is generally what I think I was talking about earlier, where my inclination is to think that we're making a lot out of a few incidents that, like this one in particular, just seems so ridiculous when you consider who the professor was and what the alleged transgression that he committed was, uh, that there are lots of colleges and universities that you never hear stories about this from, a lot of students who never interact with anything like this. But what I wonder is the mentality that informs a student sitting in a class, seeing a professor show a very old version of Othello with Laurence Olivier in blackface and becomes immediately outraged by that to the point of wanting to accuse the professor of the kind of transgressions that this professor was accused of. Where this mentality comes from and the desire to exact the price on this professor that they seem to be trying to do, I, I just, I wonder where this is emerging from because certainly it is you know, it, it is somewhat of a new phenomenon. There have always been campus radicals. That's, you know, a, yeah. a a true thing over time. But the way, the form that it has taken, which is almost, you know, the, you almost abolished uh, in local parentis in colleges and universities. And now they seem to have a desire for it to come back for these students to be protected from anything that might make them uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm, I look at this, this situation and, it strikes me as, I guess, I, I'm most frustrated probably with the administration at U of M um, that they are basically going along with the students from what the article at least uh, detailed, and they're not standing up for their professor. Uh, and that's not to say, uh, to be very clear, uh, like blackface is offensive. There is a whole history of this, you know, going back to the 19th century of uh, putting on these minstrel shows mm -hmm. and you know making fun of African Americans with very offensive you know stereotypical characters who are portrayed as lazy and dumb and all this sort of stuff. Okay, fine. Um, I doubt Professor Shang had knew about that. Um, frankly, I knew very little of any detail of that till like two weeks ago when I happened to be reading an article as part of a research project that mentioned some of the stuff. Now, I, I knew blackface was offensive. I knew there was some, you know, okay, yeah, there was some history of it. But, it, you know, uh, this may, you know, you can call this uh, uh, expression of white privilege, but I never had any reason to look into it. Um, now, I think charitably what you should say is, okay, you think that stuff is offensive. You think we shouldn't be having that in classrooms or whatever the case may be. Well, the opportunity should be you talk to your professor after class and you say, hey, you know, I was actually really offended by that version of Othello and here's why. And do you understand? And if he says, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. You say, okay, I forgive you. 
<laughs> and then you move on with your life, right? Uh, and instead, we have, you know, this big outcry. We have, uh, you know, the student newspaper article. We have, you know, all this sort of stuff. We have other professors uh, jumping on the bandwagon, and there's no avenue for forgiveness. There's no avenue for understanding, right? So the, there's this demand that you need to empathize with me. And in the history of, uh, you know, how one group of people has been ridiculed, but there's no empathy for the professor who didn't know any better. That seems crazy to me. Shouldn't we value empathy for everyone? Uh, isn't that the way that you're going to find a better solution? Isn't that the more educated and enlightened way to proceed that any university ought, ought to encourage and cultivate? You know, one one thing I could just quickly add to that is that, you know, for the professor I should also be given the opportunity to explain, well, this is why I'm showing this to you. Lawrence yeah. Olivier is a great actor. There's no question about that. Yes, there's blackface that's used in this. Um, but let's remember, remember what the time, the place. I mean, this is the problem of presentism, right? This constant reading back and being morally righteous about all sorts of things that clearly we understand today as being wrong and even was understood by some people at the time as being wrong. But to engage in this sort of outrage about these sorts of things uh, and not giving the professor a chance to explain why he's doing what he's doing, um, it does just show how bad things are in the university. And I think this point about um, empathy I think is very important because one of the things that I've noticed about the whole woke phenomena is that I mean, I frankly dispute a lot of the things that they argue. I think they're wrong in their interpretation of so many things. But leaving that all aside, the thing about woke ideology is there is no room for forgiveness. There is no room for, um, for reconciliation. It's about destruction. And there's no, there's, there's no place for people to say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand okay, we've resolved our difference, now let's move on. No, it's all about endless punishment. It becomes a, a zero-sum sort of arena. Again, it's, it's kind of using this paradigm of politics for everything, whether or not it's specifically politicized. But uh, what I mean is, you know, when somebody runs for senator, one person wins and everybody else loses, right? It's zero-sum. Uh, whereas academic freedom was originally conceived as a market uh, markets are exchange systems. They are systems right. in which we come and we bring what we have and we get something we didn't have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's a back and forth and people are better off that we have more than what we had uh, going into it. And when you reduce that to a political paradigm, a partisan paradigm or whatever, you, however you want to say it, because I don't I don't know the political affiliation. I mean, the professor maybe of the same, you know, thoughts in terms of, you know, you could be a center-left Democrat. I don't know. Um, but, you know, th this understanding of either we're winning or we're losing, I think is absolutely toxic in most cases. It, it, you know, if you are on a sports team, yes, you are either, you know, the Lions lost again on Sunday. <laughs> um, that is not to be disputed, all right? But most of life, thank God, is not a Lions football game. Um, there, you know, many people can win at the same time. Really, winning is just the wrong criteria. I've for a while described to me this phenomenon strikes me as a pseudo religious one, or at least one with some seemingly religious characteristics. Absolutely. But where there is, um, it's a religion without forgiveness, but with perpetual atonement. 
that you're you can apologize like this professor did, but you're never going to receive the forgiveness if you apologize, which gets into circumstances that may not be the best in every walk of life, where if you're I, I used to be in the PR business. And right now, my advice to any corporation that got involved in a similar situation to this or any individual like this professor would be don't apologize. Don't really say anything. Wait out about 72 hours or so. And in most cases, it passes by and people move on to the next thing. But the minute that you apologize, it's like blood in the water and the sharks come because they know that there is a target there that they can continue to exact a price from because you've already given them the beginning of what they want. However, I want to say that the point you made, Dylan, about the administration being the one that we should look at there, I think is an important one. I want to commend to people the Martin Gurry book, Revolt of the Public, I think in, uh, explains a, a lot of what we're seeing here. But what is interesting is how everyone seems to be scared of the masses or at least a perceived mass of people out there that they may be on the wrong side of. So that administrations cave to what they perceive to be a mass of students, even when the responsibilities that they may have in that certain circumstance would dictate that you don't cave to the mob. I mean, even go back to what we were talking about about American character that like you know one man with the law on his side is a majority that the American the hero in the American understanding is the person who stands up to the mob and says we're not going to hang this person today um, but you see this in a bunch of other places where people seem to be scared of their audience or their constituencies I think you see this in media with the way that certain media entities out there operate that they seem to be incredibly scared of their audiences I think talk radio is a perfect example of this you see this in politics where to a certain extent you want politicians to be scared of their constituents but I think we've gone beyond a tipping point in that where they're so afraid of their constituents that they don't actually do their jobs, that they, they know that they're most likely if they're going to lose their seat in Congress, it is not going to be in a general election. It's going to be in a primary for something like 90 percent of Congress. If they're getting ousted, it is going to be to somebody outflanking them further to the extreme of their own political party rather than closer to the center or to the other side. And there are certain cases where um, you know, the mob may be – the mass of people may be right about something. But in a lot of these cases, and I think the administration, as you pointed out, Dylan, I think you're absolutely right, that they have a duty and a responsibility to stand up to this kind of thing. And the people who are in these positions supposedly of authority seem to be so unbelievably cowed by the people that they're supposed to be helping to curate the academic and educational experience for that they just give in at the first sign of trouble. Can I say add something to that? Um, I think you're, that's right. And Professor Robert George, who's done a lot of uh, work in trying to sort of build up resistance, so to speak, to these problems, has made the point that the moment you get into the business of apologizing along the lines that you're describing, I'm not talking about someone saying, well, maybe I should rethink this, but someone saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again, et cetera, et cetera. He Conceding says the mob's point. That's right. Yes. Exactly. He says that is when you lose. And when he says when professors or whoever it is stand up and say, no, I'm not going to apologize and here's the reasons why, a lot of people back down. So that's one thing. The second thing I'd say is that there's some very disturbing polling evidence 
among uh, university students indicating that you know, a slight majority of them believe, or maybe even more than a slight majority of them believe, that it's okay to shout down professors, lecturers, or guests, guests, whoever, who are articulating views that they don't particularly like, which of course goes against the entire spirit of what a university is supposed to be about. Universities are supposed to be places where truth is pursued, where you debate differences about what you think the truth is, and even if it's someone you vehemently disagree with, like you, you, you're there and you're sitting in an audience and there's this apologist for Pol Pot from the literature department, I'm not making this up, by the way, <laughs> who is explaining why Pol Pot was such a great man, et cetera, et cetera. You don't shout them down. You wait until they're finished and then you get up and you start asking them questions. That's how universities are supposed to function. And unfortunately, there seems to be a critical mass among substantive uh, body of student opinion, but even I suspect among some faculty and I think also with some administrators that shutting down people is perfectly okay. I would just add to that. I also think there's related, very much relatedly, uh, there's there's a loss of vocation or we might say, you know, the, the principle underlying the sphere of education uh, there's there's a lot of administrators, frankly, uh, who've taken on more of a business model when it comes right. to universities. And you know, we're, I, I just got done saying academic freedom should be a market. Yes, it should be a market of ideas. Um, but schools should assume that students don't know things because that's the whole point. Yeah, they show up and you tell them <laughs> stuff they don't know, and right. then they learn it and they interact with it. Maybe they agree or disagree with it, but it should be. We're inviting you to a conversation and to to grow in your knowledge and in hopefully, hopefully in your ability to think, right, and to ask the right questions. And instead, there's this understanding of the student is our consumer, and we don't want you know bad consumer feedback. You know, you have all there's there's all kinds of websites out there which are fine. Uh, this it's not bad. It's not to say that. There's no value in students saying, do you like this professor and not like ratemyprofessor.com or, you know, and that sort of thing. But I remember the first time I'm old enough. Uh, I'm now an old person. I've decided uh, I'm 37. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember a time before and a time when student evaluations happened. I remember getting my first one. Uh, I, this was, you know, several years into college. A class was done and they passed around this survey. Give us some feedback about what you thought of this class. And I remember sitting there thinking, why does anybody care what I think of this class? I'm the student, right? <laughs> that is just, it was beyond me. I, I, like, I had no idea why anyone was asking me for my opinion. Um, the whole point is you show up and the professor grades you. Their opinion is the one that matters, right? That, that's supposed to be the point. And uh, many, 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 many schools are so far afield from that. Um, and ironically, they, a lot of this tends towards bad business metrics in terms of student retention um, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I think schools are the best when they know how to be schools. And I think that they will find when instead of trying to cater uh, to every student demand, uh, as a company might try to cater to consumers, uh, they simply just do their best job to educate, hopefully sensitively, Hopefully fairly, hopefully virtuously. I'm not saying that, you know, again, that not, none of the concerns starting this whole thing uh, 
had no validity to them. Uh, but there's there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with that. And, you know, this is ballooning, as you said, to kind of ridiculous proportions. I want to make a note that um, there's another case out there that I think uh, to perhaps please Michael Miller, who was on this podcast last week and, and talked some about his skepticism about uh, technology and big tech, that I do think uh, digital communications the the prevalence of them tend to make a lot of these things worse. And I'll give you an example that there is a uh, professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, a guy by the name of Gordon Klein, who is suing UCLA. There's been a campaign to get him fired. A student um, had sent to him at the time of the George Floyd incident uh, last year, had sent an email uh, basically requesting that the professor would say, we, from the email, uh, we're writing to express our tremendous concern about the impact of this final exam and project will have on the mental and physical health of our black classmates. Uh, so they were asking for preferential treatment for other classmates based on their race and asking the professor to do something that this professor, and we'll include the link to the piece he wrote uh, on Barry Weiss's Substack in, in the show notes, you can read it for yourself, to me, I think the bigger problem comes in that, I, as as Sam had said, that there's an appropriate way to say no to that. Um, the response, however, that Klein authored, and again, if you find yourself writing this kind of an email, I highly recommend that you just set it aside for a while and come back to it. Uh, the email, thanks for your suggestion, your email below that I give black students special treatment given the tragedy in Minnesota. Do you know the names of the classmates that are black? How can I identify them since we've been having <laughs> online classes only? Are there any students that may be of mixed percentage uh, parentage, such as half, uh, half black, half Asian? What do you suggest I do with respect to them? A full concession or just half? Also, do you have any idea of any students from Minneapolis? I assume that they could probably, um, that they are probably especially devastated as well. I am thinking that a white student from there might possibly be even more devastated by this, especially because someone might think that they're racist, even if they are not. And it goes on that kind of a sarcastic response, which is the kind of thing that I think comes easier to us because of digital communication is the kind of thing that you should probably set aside. And we'll we'll see what happens with this professor's lawsuit. Um, yeah, imagine if you had to write that out on paper and put it in the student's mailbox. A little, all a little more grace <laughs> from people, I think, would be from everybody on all sides sure. of this would be great for all of us. But Sam, before we go, you have a, uh, in Law and Liberty, and we will include the link to this uh, book review in the show notes, um, we've been talking a lot about woke ideology. You have a review of the Vivek Ramaswamy book, Woke Inc. I'm curious, you just uh, share some brief thoughts on the book, this phenomenon, and uh, sure. I said we'll include the link to the whole piece in the show notes. Well, I'll start by picking up on something you said, Eric, when you said that you know people go to college and they get all excited and then they get out into the real world, right? You said, you said the real world and they, they suddenly discover that it's not quite the way they want it to be. Well, uh, unfortunately, in this book, Woke Inc., it's called, um, the author goes through and points out just how far woke ideology has permeated corporate America. And he points to all sorts of different criteria, which indicates that this is happening. He speaks a great deal about his own personal experiences in dealing with this phenomenon as someone who's been in the business world himself for quite a long time in biotech. And he points out that a lot of this is being driven by 
frankly, by employees demanding this sort of stuff, demanding, you know, sort of struggle sessions, demanding uh, consciousness-raising exercises. So it does make you wonder uh, on one level how far people actually move away from this type of thinking and ideology once they leave leave the bubble of the university because in some respects they're entering another bubble where a lot of these ideas are extremely prevalent. But he also goes on and points out that Many of these, many of these problems with with woke capitalism, with all this, all this, all this phenomena that that is shaping corporate America right now, he goes on and points out it's partly because people actually believe this stuff. It's also partly because there's plenty of CEOs who think that they need to adjust, if only just to, if because it's a cost of doing business, or because they see potential to attract or enter new markets or woke audiences who are looking at things from a political level and want to know that you're completely on side before you buy their product or whatever it happens to be. But you know, he also proposes some solutions to sort of to move back in the direction of a genuinely pluralistic America rather than, the, than this sort of war that's being waged through proxies, where the, whether it's in universities or whether it's in businesses. But you mentioned, um, maybe you or Dylan mentioned this issue of religion. And I think he does talk about this, how wokeism at some level is a type of religion it has doctrines, it has prophets, it has its saints, it has, its, it has uh, those who are the people who are outside the communion, those who are heretics and need to be treated as such. And it does raise this sort of broader question of whether wokeism, all the things that are associated with that, do reflect a type of religious yearning. I often say when people lose their religious faith, whether it's in Judaism, Christianity, or whatever it happens to be, they rarely actually give up on religion. Something fills the place. Something fills the gap. And often it's politics, politics or even more specifically ideology. And one of the questions I raise in my review is that, okay, if that's the case, then what do what does organized religion say about this? How does it react to this? How does it present a different vision of the human person, the purpose of life, uh, an ethic of justice, but also an ethic of forgiveness and all these sorts of things? And one of the unfortunate things I conclude is that organized religion in America is just not in a particularly good state to undertake this role at the moment. One, because I think there's a fair number of people in in, uh, different uh, confessions, different churches who have essentially bought in to a lot of this stuff. Um, some of them behave more like NGOs than actually religious organizations, so they don't have much to say about this either. Um, but also so much, so many religious organizations have very little credibility right now, sexual scandals, financial scandals, etc. It's very difficult for a lot of people, who, especially if they're not believers, to take their pronouncements particularly serious about these sorts of things. So I think um, it's certainly what's interesting. The most interesting thing I found about this book was it's very much a sort of personal story of someone in business who's had to confront this, not just during 2021, uh, 2020, but also during, um, during the lead up to that and the fallout of that. 
And the way that, I mean, because I, I hear people say things like, well, this is primarily a way of businesses reacting to a changing marketplace. And I think there's some truth to that. But he makes it very clear that a lot of this is being driven from within companies by employees uh, who, who come in from universities and they want their businesses, the businesses they're working in to be like this, to be this uber-politically correct consciousness-raising exercises in which they serve some people but not others or whatever it happens to be, but also a fair number of CEOs who haven't just bought into this because it's a way of placating particular groups or just because they think it's an entry into new markets. It's also because they've actually bought into this ideology itself. And one of the things I try and draw out is how some of this starts to coincide with the great, the great thing, that temptation of all business leaders, which is to play the crony mercantilist game. Uh, so, for example, if you're uh, looking for a government contract and you're in a progressive state and you're having to get the contract from progressive legislators, it doesn't hurt to emphasize how woke you are, right? It gives you a bit of an edge over the person who's not so woke. So um, one of the things I think it's interesting about this is how some of this woke capitalist phenomena plays in to long-standing uh, problems that a lot of business leaders have with the marketplace itself. I often say to people, to be pro-market is not the same thing as being pro-business. They're two very different things. And this is not just me saying this. Adam Smith made this point. Milton Friedman said, made this point. Milton Friedman said, his classic line was, well, the two groups that have been most opposed to the free market in American history are one, intellectuals. Well, of course, we all know that, right? But he also says corporations. And it's a very interesting example of how a good number of the business community don't have a long-term perspective on these things. They're very short-term in their orientation. So by caving in or buying in to some of this woke capitalist phenomena, they may be placating people for the moment. They may be staving off regulation. I think that's a lot of it, by the way. A lot of these businesses are doing this because they don't want it to be imposed by the federal government, which I think people like Elizabeth Warren would, or for that matter, some people on the new right would like to do. But in the long term, it's going to create all sorts of problems for businesses. But of course, by that stage, a lot of these CEOs will no longer be in their position. So there's a classic short-term, long-term thing. And markets, I often say, are, are always about the long-term. Business and some business leaders and some business enterprises, their horizon is not so long. You see in the debates that we're currently having about social media, the other side of the desire that uh, some businesses trying to avoid having this stuff regulated and put upon them and others right. who are openly welcoming and calling for it, I think, because with regard to how social media handles their decision making and, and part of big tech. So I don't dispute that they uh, are probably influenced by a lot of people who would subscribe to some kind of a woke ideology. Well, I've had business people say to me, for example, in tech, that if, if because they need workers, they need tech, work, tech workers, and a lot of people who work in tech, not all, but a lot of people who work in tech tend to be progressive, that a lot of um, employees are in a position to sort of make these demands 
upon the companies that they're working for because they know they can always go and work somewhere else and maybe even be paid more and have someone affirm them ideologically. Well, to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, another example of the people who are supposed to be in positions of authority and responsibility, the people running these companies, scared of their own employees. I think you, right. you saw the, a very clear example of this at the New York Times with the editorial that was uh, published by Senator Tom Cotton, and it was a revolt of the primarily young young employees with nothing to do with the editorial page who mm-hmm. just didn't want anything like that in the publication for which they worked. You, you saw it even going back a few years earlier with Kevin Williamson being hired at The Atlantic, despite the fact that Kevin Williamson was never going to set foot in The Atlantic's office because he lives in Texas, that somehow that was <laughs> making them unsafe. And you have people who are supposed to be the ones to say to the employees, no, you work here and we believe this is a important person to have hired. We believe this this is an important viewpoint to be published in our paper, and you're not going to decide for us how we're going to handle that business, instead caving to all of them. Mm-hmm. What Sam said, I'm, I'm reminded also of the of Russ Roberts, who uh, uses this quote from David Foster Wallace all the time, everyone worships. And in an environment where people are not channeling the homo religioso impulse that we have through religion— it does find its outlets anywhere, and it finds its outlets in more poisonous things, which I think we see in the last couple of stories we've talked about here. Yeah, if I could add maybe some provocative nuance. Uh, in the last 30 years or more, um, there's been a phenomenon, which we see coming up again and again, of people looking for a religion without the church, or without traditional religious institutions to be uh, more interfaith uh, in, in our way of putting it. Uh, what I see with this sort of wokeism is basically the opposite. People wanting church without religion, <laughs> right? Yes. People wanting things like anathemas and mm-hmm. penance and um, morality codes and things like that, which are proper for religious institutions. They want their business to do that for them, their employer to do that for them, their government to do that for them, Um, whatever it may be. uh, They're in search of an institution to be that for whatever their values are. Um, So I'm not that's not necessarily to disagree uh, with what's previously been said. Um, But I think that that's what I see. I see it's kind of the sociological aspects of church or temple or however you want to put, you know, religious institutions historically, people are trying to push that on the businesses they not only work for, but simply like buy stuff from, like they consume their products and they want that to also be their church. I think that's incredibly poisonous uh, for their own well-being. Um, and I think it's it's also kind of a fool's errand. You're just never going to get there. There's always going to be somebody more woke than you or less woke than you or, you know, maybe you're, you're, your uh, your voting district lines get gerrymandered, and oh, we were a woke district, but now we got a bunch of gun owning uh, Trump voters, and so we're gonna we're gonna change our tune for our company because that's what's gonna work for us politically when it comes to you know all this cronyism and mercantilism and what you know suddenly you just lose it all mm-hmm. um, because you weren't actually rooted in a centuries old religious tradition and institution, which is stubborn and backwards and conservative and all of those sorts of ways that make them resistant to change. And hopefully, although, you know, very often not the case, but hopefully, you know, resistant to just the, the passing winds of whatever happens to be the fad of the day. 
Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, please, so that people can find this program. Thank you to Sam and Dylan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. 